Then Jesus said to the disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was squandering his property. So he summoned him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Give me an accounting of your management, because you cannot be my manager any longer. Then the manager said to himself, What will I do now that my master is taking the position away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm ashamed to beg. I've decided what to do, so that when I am dismissed as manager, people may welcome me into their homes. So summoning his master's debtors, one by one, he asked the first, How much do you owe my master? He answered, A hundred jugs of olive oil. He said to him, Take your bill. Sit down quickly and make it fifty. Then he asked another, And how much do you owe? He replied, A hundred containers of wheat. He said to him, Take your bill and make it eighty. His manager, master commended the dishonest management manager because he had acted shrewdly, for the children of this age are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than are the children of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of dishonest wealth, so that when it is gone, they may welcome you into the eternal homes. For whoever is faithful in a very little is faithful also in much. This is the word of the Lord. When I was in seminary, we were taught about a man named Dr. Joachim Jeremias, one of the first of the scholars last century to decide that probably the most authentic things we have from Jesus are the parables, that in fact the four Gospels are interpretations of the life, ministry, even death and resurrection of Jesus, that these four, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, did not ever consider themselves to be writing the front page of the newspaper, but the editorial page, telling us something of what happened and much of what those happenings really meant. Dr. Joachim Jeremia said, if you want to know the heart and mind of Jesus, concentrate on the parables. And a fellow named Dodd came along after him and did the same, and then one after another. A few years ago in our Barton Clinton Gordy series, we had Dr. Brandon Scott come to give our presentations. He is a Roman Catholic who holds a distinguished chair in New Testament studies at Phillips Theological Seminary. He has spent 40 years of an adult lifetime studying just the parables of Jesus. He concludes that all the parables are about the kingdom of God. He says about this particular one I've just read, this is perhaps the most difficult one of them all because we are immediately turned off by Jesus acting as if the master commends a dishonest steward. Let's see what he and others of modern-day scholarship have to say about this parable. Number one, they point out that this is about a rich man. A rich man, which means that most of the people following Jesus do not identify with him at all. He is not going to get a sympathetic hearing, this rich man. Now, Jesus tells us he was rich, and we immediately know that he is rich because of the amount that he is owed by others. Our translation, I think, does not help you as much as it could. 
The reason being that we don't know exactly what the measures of oil were, just how big. We don't know exactly how big were the measures of wheat. But Dr. Brandon Scott says, I believe this figure given means a thousand gallons of olive oil. Now, he said, you have to remember that the word thousand was the biggest number they had. So it's sort of like a child saying he had a zillion, a zillion gallons of olive oil. And Jesus is talking to people who are subsistence living, meaning if the man of the house is hired for the day, he earns one Roman coin called a denarius. He can feed his family for 24 hours. If he is not hired, he gets no coin and they do not eat. A zillion gallons of olive oil this rich man was owed. A zillion, a thousand measures of wheat. Bushels would probably be nearer describing for us. And the dishonest steward and saying, well, Cut it in half. We'll cut it by 20% on the case of the wheat. The third way we know this is about rich people, they can all read and write. How much do you owe? Well, it says here a thousand measures. Very good. Write, mark that out and put down 500. How much do you owe? I owe a thousand bushels of wheat. Mark that out. Put down 80. Okay. Dr. Scott, Dr. Luke Timothy Johnson, Dr. Alan Culpepper, they say the people hearing Jesus, 97, 98% of them could not read nor write. So they would be impressed, but not sympathetic. Impressed, but not sympathetic. Number two, Luke did not divide his writing into chapter and verse. None of the writers of the Bible divided his or her work into chapter and verse. Versification was done centuries later. Luke is just writing. So you can't deal faithfully with chapter 16 without looking at what has come just before. And what has come just before is the grumbling of the religious community. Grumbling, look at him. He's eating with those tax collectors and other sinners, meaning he's accepting them. He eats with them. And Jesus told him a story about a lost sheep, a lost coin, a lost boy, and a dishonest manager. It's about a key word that's found in the third thing lost, the boy, and found here again. Exactly the same word in Greek, squandering. This good Jewish boy says to his father, in effect, I wish you were dead so I could have my share of the inheritance now. And the father gives it to him. He goes into a foreign country where they grow pigs, terrible place for a Jewish boy, and squanders everything. And now we have a manager who's squandering what belongs to somebody else. Some years ago, when Bishop Dan Solomon was bishop of all of us Oklahoma Methodists, he invited to be annual conference preacher Bishop Woody White. Bishops get to choose their conference preachers each year. He chose Bishop Woody White one particular year when the conference was held here at Boston Avenue. And Bishop White came from Indi Indianapolis. 
powerful, powerful preacher. A few years later, he retired. And for many years now, he's been bishop in residence at our Candler School of Theology, Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia. He writes regularly in the United Methodist Reporter. Did you read what he wrote recently? He said, for years I was a preacher. Now I'm a sitter-in-the-pew person. Sunday after Sunday I sit in the pew. And as I listen to the prelude, I remember what a district superintendent said one time back in Indiana. We were having a cabinet meeting discussing churches that needed a change of pastorate. I was calling on one superintendent after another to tell us about which churches in his or her district needed new pastors. And finally, one district superintendent said, let me tell you about a pastor parish relations committee meeting I attended last week. The church poured out its heart for the kind of person they felt they needed. All had had a moment to speak. One fellow had said nothing. And finally, I asked him, was there anything you wanted to say? And he said... We know our church is not the biggest in Indiana. We realize we're not going to get the best you've got. But could you send us somebody so that when I get in my car to drive home, I don't feel I've wasted a good hour of my time? And Bishop White wrote, People come expecting to hear a word from the Lord. He said, I'm getting old. My friends are dying. I often come to church now when I've been standing by an open grave earlier in the week. I need a word from the Lord. Not all my children, my grandchildren are doing wonderfully well. I need a word from the Lord. And I wonder, am I going to waste my hour? I prayed with the choir. We believe our hymns are a word from the Lord. We believe our anthem texts are a word from the Lord. We believe our prayers are a word from the Lord. We believe readings from his all-important book are a word from the Lord. I pray that the sermon is a word from the Lord. And what would that word be right now? Don't squander lost sheep. Don't squander lost coins. Don't squander lost boys and girls. Don't squander your stuff. Be faithful. Number three. This story says, it says the curio showed up. The Lord. That's what it says. Now, this word in Greek can be translated master as well. I mean, slaves, servants, sometimes kurios, the Lord, the Lord. It can mean either one here. The important word is you're about to have to account for how you've been managing my stuff. And accounting. Do you see the wonderful big article in the Tulsa World this week of the Jewish children down at the Arkansas River? A group of Jewish children... Bill Sherman in his column said dozens of them had come to the Arkansas River. The person who was leading them in this exercise is a woman educator from Israel. You know that Tiberias is a sister city through Global Alliance with us here in Tulsa. Every year, a liaison comes from Israel to spend a year. Sometimes they stay two 
here in Tulsa, interpreting what's going on in Israel and working in education in the synagogue and the temple as called upon. She was leading this group of children down by the river that day. You see the children with the shofars in their hands? They were blowing the ram's horn. They knew that Rosh Hashanah began last Sunday night, Monday morning. They know it's 10 days now until Yom Kippur this coming Wednesday. The ram's horn will be sounded by Mr. Cohn at Temple Israel this coming Wednesday for Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. These children had been allowed to blow the ram's horn down there by the Arkansas River. And after they blew the ram's horns, they were tossing little pieces of bread out into the Arkansas River. And the educator said, we have told them that fish have no eyelids. Their eyes are open all the time like God. God's eyes never close. He sees everything. And then I told them that at the Sea of Galilee, which is really a freshwater lake, as you know, the fish are harvested by netting them like the net that God throws, the net that gathers us all before the judgment seat of God. Rabbi Sherman was interviewed the week before. He said, for this 10-day period, we're reminding our people again, they're supposed to be praying, they're supposed to be repenting, what good might they have done this past year that they never got done? What did they do that they should not have done? Are they willing to let God turn them and send them in a right direction? And we're doing acts of charity. We're doing good things for people who need us. And accounting. That's a word from the Lord. Number four. Here we need help with another Greek word. Sometimes we have words in our scriptures that are not found in classical Greek writing. But this word we have from the pen of Aristotle. In the fourth century, before the Common Era, Plato, Socrates, Aristotle began this great philosophical age in Greece. And Aristotle has a word that we translate here as shrewdly. Other translators, like Dr. Luke Timothy Johnson at Princeton, likes the word cleverly. He has decided cleverly. In Luke's gospel, remember there are times when somebody says, What will I do? Oh, what will I do? A rich man whose harvest is the biggest he's ever had. What shall I do? Never cross his mind to share with those who have less. No, tear down the barns he has and build bigger barns and save it all. That night, he died. What shall I do? That's what this man is asking. What shall I do? Ah, I've decided what I will do. And Aristotle's word is, he acted shrewdly. He acted cleverly. Or another way of saying it is, he had good common sense. We might say in Oklahoma, horse sense. Now, let's see. How can I endear myself to folks who will not forget when I'm in need. Aha, I know. I will mark their debts down. This one owes a thousand of olive oil, mark 500. This one owes a thousand of wheat, mark 800. 
they will remember. And the Greek word is reciprocity. They will reciprocate. Now, scholars say what Jesus is trying to say is, okay, I know you're not those rich people, but your Lord has come for a visit. He's found you too, squandering time, money, people. What shall you do? This week one night when Gail and I were eating, she said, I saw there's a, going to be a program on tonight about the Gettysburg battle and Gettysburg Address. You might enjoy it. I said, thanks very much. I would like to watch that. And we did watch. I remembered, of course, 1976. We took our little ones at that time on a bicentennial trip. We flew from Texas to Washington, D.C., but we rented a car and drove them immediately down to Jamestown, Williamsburg. And then we came north again to Washington. Now we spent time in Washington. We walked through Arlington National Cemetery. We took them to the Lincoln Memorial and the Washington Monument and the Jefferson Memorial. We let them see the Capitol building, of course. Then we drove on into Pennsylvania. We went to the Gettysburg Battlefield. A young woman there working for the Parks Department was a terrific storyteller. She got us out on that battlefield, and she's got our little children. She's saying, and the smoke was coming up from the cannons, and here were guys running and screaming with rifles in their hands. took her hours we went through that. When we got in the car to drive a little farther, Trey looked at me, nine years old, and said, Dad, we almost won. We Southerners almost won. But we didn't win. We lost. And so did the Union lose. Gettysburg was a little town of 2,000. Think Wetumpka, Oklahoma. And suddenly 160,000 men are at your gate. Because five highways ran, not highways, and those roads ran through Gettysburg. Five of them crossed there, meaning there were five roads in, five roads out, ten roads into this one little place. And the soldiers came, 160,000 of them, and they fought three days. And when the battle was over, almost 60,000 men lay in the field, dead or dying, 2,000 to pick up and bury, try to help 60,000 lying in the fields. Four months later, our president arrived. Mr. Everett had been given the role of principal speech maker. He spoke over two hours in a cold, drizzling rain. Our president spoke a little over two minutes. But almost all school children are made to learn the Gettysburg Address. Four score and seven years ago, our forefathers brought forth on the, you know it. Yeah, those words. A few years ago, Gail and I had a tour of the National Cathedral in Washington. And one of the statues there that I liked very much was a President Abraham Lincoln kneeling in prayer. It was made by a fellow named Herbert Hauck, a sculptor whose grandfather was at Gettysburg that November day when this new cemetery 
was officially dedicated. And he said, just before the festivities began, he saw Mr. Lincoln walk into the edge of the woods and kneel down, remove his hat, and pray. He told his son. His son told his son, who made a sculpture for the National Cathedral. Remembering what Mr. Lincoln said one time, there were so many times I was driven to my knees because there was nowhere else to go. Not for him and not for you and me. Amen.